experience. When we were finished with school, we were appointed or sent by our home mission board to Southern California. And we got involved in church planting. And during the years we were there, we helped start five congregations. I, there's so much I want to say about that. But we were involved in church planting in California. We were at First Baptist Church Beverly Hills, was our mother church. Gail and I lived in West Hollywood, which was primarily a gay community. And, in fact, they incorporated as the first gay community in the United States while we were there. Our first two children were born there. And I learned a great deal about how God saves people and how God changes people in that experience. It was there that I first met Jerry White. And um, and he became a father in the Lord and became one of two men who were fathers in the Lord to me throughout my life. When we left California, I took a pastor back in North Mississippi, and I, I pastored in a rural setting. Now, I had never lived in a rural setting. I had never hunted. I had never done fishing. I still don't do much of that. And But for four years, God did a work in my heart and just helped me better understand the gospel, better understand how he changes a person. And then there came a season where, where we were invited by a group of families out of Jerry's church, and, and uh, they had moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana, to join them. They'd been meeting in homes for about a year, and that didn't work out. And so I, I began working in, and took that engineering background and began working in for five years for an environmental engineering firm and was in and out of petrochemical facilities and uh, plants and offshore and all kinds of chem plants for five years. I didn't want to do that. But God immersed me in that world, and I was serving a church at the same time, part-time. And I acquired all of this business acumen that I didn't want. But I learned how the workaday world functions for the average person. Uh, when, uh, when we were finished with that, we became part of a church that grew dramatically in Lake Charles. Um, it was just a remarkable season of time. God moved us later to another church plant in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And um, and from there, I went to be an editor at Lifeway Christian Resources and um, for pastor's resources. I had started a website in the mid-'90s for pastors. And as a consequence of that, got to be a part of developing resources for pastors and just had always loved pastors but really began to love pastors in that role. And... Um, from there, went to serve with the Arkansas Baptist State Convention for 10 years as their associate executive director. And we had traveling staff. We had 1,500 churches that we were serving and uh, had all these administrative assignments. But the thing that, that I didn't delegate, that I was absolutely delighted that the Lord let me do, was I had the prayer assignment for the state. And so in that capacity, I, I traveled nearly every week to talk to congregations, talk to churches about prayer ministry about prayer for revival and spiritual awakening and how God works and accomplishes his purpose. When I thought, when I left the state convention, that I was moving into my last assignment, I took a pastorate in the Delta, uh, the flat agricultural area of East Arkansas, and uh, I really thought that would be the last place we would go. Um, We built a house we never planned to sell, uh, we served a church, and out of that congregation, we, we saw two new congregations started. Uh, the Delta of Arkansas, there's such great need spiritually, such spiritual oppression. We just saw that the rest of our lives easily could be spent there. 
And we just saw remarkable things take place. But about a year before we we were finished, my heart shifted. And and I'm going to make reference to some of these things, so I'm trying to give you a framework and, and very quickly. But my heart shifted, and I had a sense that ministry was going to change for us again. And I shared that with my wife, and um, and and over a, the passage of a year, it became clear God was leading us back to South Louisiana, where I serve 90 churches now, as and the title that they use is Mission Strategist. We used to use the title Director of Missions or Associational Missionary 50 years ago. But um, but I serve churches. I work for them. And so I spend my days and weeks with pastors and with church leaders every day uh, talking with them about um, their needs. And dear ones, the greatest thing that, that I encounter over and over again is that we have a tendency to preach and teach the truth. But then go about our, our regular life in a way that actually, in many respects, contradicts the things that we say we believe. Jesus said that I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And in saying that, he was saying to everyone who would listen to him that there's a new way to live, an entirely different way to live than the way that you're living. When he spoke to the tax collectors and sinners in Luke 15, 1, where he goes on and tells the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, it says that all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. What Jesus had to say represented something more than just morality. This is how you live a good life and the right life, and this is how you live a bad life and a wrong life. Because they'd already heard that, and that wasn't good news. But but he was saying to them the kinds of things we read about when he would share with others. You know, he would he would talk to the woman at the well. He would he would um, he would say even in the hearing of the Pharisees, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." That was a salvation invitation. And and in extending that, he was saying to them, and what I find myself saying to church leaders over and over again is, it's not all on. You. He did not create you to be self-reliant. He created you to rely on Him. And so it, it behooves us to begin a prayer conference by praying, doesn't it? I was looking just before we came. The Lord brought a scripture to mind. Uh, John 16, and you don't need to turn there, speaking of the Holy Spirit. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. How much truth? All truth. All truth. For he will speak, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, if the Holy Spirit operates that way, how can I do less? If he is entirely relying on the Lord Jesus for what he he is going to say to us and transmit to us and convey to us, it stands to reason that he wants to fill our hearts and our minds with those things he wants us to say 
to explore and to know. So we're going to take some time to pray. What we're going to do is very simple. I'm going to give you just some very simple direction. We're going to put a scripture on the screen. Um, when uh, I'm going to explain just a word or two about that, but it's a prompt for you to pray. And so be thinking about who you want to pray with. Um, you know, uh, one other person at least. Okay? And so there should be at least two of you that say, hey, we're going to pray together. If three of you want to pray together, that's fine. I wouldn't go more than four people praying together because you're not going to have enough time. I'm not going to let you. Okay? So, um, so let's, uh, let's hit pause. And would you join me for just a moment? Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of sitting still at your feet and allowing you to, to speak to our hearts. And Lord, I want to say what you want to say, but I know that it can only be heard at the deepest levels of each of these dear ones' heart if you speak to them, if you apply it to their heart, if you take and, and make it real to them, and so, Lord, as we've already prayed, I, I ask that this weekend, for so many of these dear ones, I pray that this weekend would be absolutely a time where you meet with them. And where it becomes a moment that they never forget. Because it completely redefines and redirects the course of their life. Father, this is, this is something we can't do. We confess that we are weak, but you are strong. And we thank you for hearing us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so the first passage of Scripture I want to call your attention to is found in Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. What strikes me about this passage is that it is a promise. And it's a promise that the Father is going to respond in a particular way when our hearts have a particular uh, thing going on called thirst. And and so the promise is, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. So is your heart a dry ground? As we begin this conference, is your heart a dry ground? Is it thirsty? Are you thirsty? And so as we pray together... We are asking for the Father to hear our cry, to quench our thirst with himself, with his spirit. We're asking for that. But if you're not thirsty, how do you pray about that? It's perfectly okay to say, Lord, would you cause me to be thirsty? Would you create in me a thirst that only you can satisfy? And so would you join me in, in taking a few moments with your prayer partners? Okay, I'm going to give you a moment to pair up, triple up, quad up, whatever the case is. And um, take just a moment to do that. And then just go ahead and begin to pray. You don't need to discuss it. Just just begin to pray. And I'll call us back to together in just a moment. Father, forgive us for being satisfied with, with lesser things to temporarily quench our thirst. Forgive us for filling our, our lives with things that cause us to escape from reality and escape from our own existence. 
forgive us for, for the times that we have run. And Lord, tonight we do ask that you would quench the thirst of your people. We ask that you would create in us truly a desire for you, a fresh desire for you. Father, remind us this weekend of the incredible privilege we have to be able to approach you as your children, to look on your beauty, to listen for your voice, to sense your inner working in our hearts. To respond as you bring things to mind that we need to start doing or stop doing. Enable us to rejoice in our liberty, our capacity to walk with a living God. And all God's people said, Amen. The next passage of Scripture on the screen is from Ephesians chapter 40, verse 30. And Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. As we, as we pray in this next moment, I'm just going to ask you to pray quietly. Uh, don't leave your partner, but just pray quietly. And as the Lord brings to mind, puts his point of his Holy Spirit on maybe a wrong attitude, something that you'd let slip and you haven't addressed it, some perhaps even an ongoing repetitive habit or failure, and you're just not, you, you, you've done it for so long and you're not experiencing victory, you just sort of acquiesced and you don't even struggle against it anymore. Would you allow the Lord through His Spirit to bring those things to mind and would you confess them? In your heart. Say God this is sin. And I don't want this in my life. And if he if He gives you specific direction. Maybe there's someone you need to speak to. Someone you need to call when we get done tonight. A relationship that, that isn't right. You know it's not right. Yield to him. Let him have his way. Your capacity to hear him can be clouded and obstructed by sin. And our hope this weekend is that he would come and make himself real to us in a fresh way. And so to be a part of that, you want to take this very seriously. In Isaiah 6, he has this vision of a holy God. As he recognizes the presence of God and his holiness, he becomes acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And he has to deal with it. 
And he knows exactly what he needs to do. And he knows exactly what the problem is. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. The moment he confessed that, the Bible says the angel came and took a a coal from the altar where things die for sin. And he touched his lips with it. Made him clean. Then, he says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, And the way it's worded, God had always been speaking. He wasn't hearing. But God had been speaking. You don't want to miss what God has for you. You don't want to miss the best. He made you for a purpose. He has a plan. You don't want to miss one moment of that. So be bold tonight and privately. Would you deal with what he brings to mind? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are, you are so gentle and tender with us. I'm thankful. Father, I don't know. I know we couldn't handle it if you were to lift the lights all the way and we were to see all at once everything that was wrong, everything that was broken, everything that was damaged, everything that was ruined by sin in our lives. The Father is your people. Respond to what you're saying to them in their hearts right now. Lord, would you grant to them a a sense that you have forgiven them and cleansed them. That you have provided a way for them to be completely clean through Jesus. I pray for those dear ones that struggle with guilt and never seem to get free of it. Father, make it real to them that That forgiveness is what you do. That it's about your character and how you forgive and not not about us or our worthiness or how carefully we've confessed. So Lord, we open our hearts wide to you tonight. We wish to unburden those hearts. And so as you bring things to mind tonight and this weekend, Lord, would you, would you plant in us a deep conviction to say yes immediately. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two more, but I'm only going to do one more. Let's just do one more. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. You want to do this with your prayer partners. The Bible says, this is God speaking, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Well, we can rejoice in that, can't we? Our Father's on His throne. There's nothing coming in your life right now that He looks at and says, oops. He completely knows. And is completely in control. And so we have much to praise them about. So let's pray and just simply use it as a time to praise the Lord with your prayer partners. Father, we praise you tonight because you are on your throne. And we are confident and delighted that you are at work in our lives and in our families, our homes. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes this weekend to see more 
of your glory. To recognize more of your sovereignty. And I pray, Father, that it would be a a basis for us to rejoice as we realize that our lives are all about you and that you have created us for yourself and that there is great joy in finding our place in your kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mrs. Hurt, for playing for us. Appreciate that. I want, I want, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to be looking there for just a few moments. I didn't ask Colin how long this normally goes, but I, I thought it was an all-night prayer meeting, right? Yeah. Okay. So we're good. The, the, um, when Colin asked me to do this, it was in July, early July of last year. I looked it up. And, and when he asked, and I began to pray about it, and was wondering, Lord, you know, what, 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 where's the focus needing to be? And he brought a scripture to mind that, in fact, I had written down in my journal about 10 months earlier. And it's this Luke 18 passage that we're going to read tonight. And, and, um, this is probably less of a, uh, exposition and more of encouragement tonight. And Lord willing, as he gives us opportunity, we're going to dive more into the scripture tomorrow and Sunday morning. But but dear ones, in North America, we have a great, great need for the church to change their entire perspective on what it means to be church. I'm not making fun of anyone, but on a regular basis, I have a conversation with churches or a pastor that goes like this. My church isn't growing. We can't get our church to grow. We have fewer attending now than we did 10 years ago. You look out over our congregation, there's only 10 of us, 20 of us, 40 of us. And they're all old, whatever that means. And and we tried everything we know. We can't compete with the larger churches down the road. They can reach children because they have all these children's programs. They can reach students because they have all these students' programs. And we, we can't compete with that. And... And our giving is such that we're not sure we can even afford to call a pastor. We, we don't have the money to pay them and we can barely keep the lights on and pay our bills. We've tried to reach out. We've had, we've had block parties in neighborhoods and they come and they eat our hot dogs, but they never come to church. And so we are at our wits end. We don't know what to do. We are clueless. We have no idea what to do. And I'll have that conversation, and and it typically lasts 45 minutes to an hour. And when I think they're through, I'll ask, are you through? And not always, but often, if I have a marker board, I'll write it on the marker board. Or I'll just say it verbally. I say, you know, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, On this rock, I... We'll build my church. And the gates of hell 
will not prevail against it. For the last hour, you have said the gates of hell prevailing. So what do you think the problem is? Jesus said, I will build my church. It's no wonder we're not getting anywhere. Because we're trying to build our church. We even call it our church. And Jesus has said that when my people are rightly related to me, and I am head of the church, and I am able to direct my body, the gates of hell, those obstacles to people coming to know me, those gates come down. That's his promise. That's what he said. I didn't say that. And so, so much of the time, when we struggle as churches, we think we have an organizational problem. Well, we need better programming. We need more money. We need poor people giving. That if we had a better preacher, maybe all of that would happen. So we we get a better pastor. We think that's going to help. Jesus Jesus didn't say on that really good pastor, I'll build my church. And so... They think it's an organizational problem. And, you know, if it was, that would be really easy to fix. I'm an organizational guy. Colin and I were talking. He's an organizational guy. You you cut us, we bleed organizational stuff. I've worked in the business world. I, I understand organizational development and organizational metrics and, and what it takes to build a, a corporation or a company. I understand all of that. But what if the problem that we have is not an organizational problem? What if it's a relationship problem? What if it's a matter of being rightly related to the Lord Jesus that makes all the difference? And so because of that, we, we have no clue what we're supposed to be doing at church. Jesus said to go and make disciples. I've sat down with, with staffs of large churches and said, we're going to go through an exercise today. I found that churches that can answer these three questions tend to be pretty good at the Great Commission. The first question is, what is a disciple? And that's usually where we've stumped. What is a disciple? Oh, you can give me the textbook answer. But if you're going to make a disciple, you've got to know what one is. You have to have a definition. And churches that are making disciples have worked out what is a disciple. Second question, how do we make disciples? Jesus said to go and make them. So there must be some approach to making them. And and then the third question is, how do we know when we made a disciple? Because there's a terminus to it. He says, go and make disciples. That means at some point they were not a disciple and now they are a disciple. And so if we can answer those questions and have some sense of what it means to be a disciple, to make a disciple, and some some metric for knowing when we've made a disciple, we're we're off to the races. Because now we're getting close to the heart of God, the things he cares about, the things he wants us to do. So when I think about that, I think the most fundamental thing for a disciple is that he be a man or she be a woman that knows how to really walk with God. Not as an idea Not as a quiet time where I check off my daily Bible reading, but with a living God. 
when I talk to churches, they'll look at me like, do you have a plan for us? Do you have a plan? I was saved with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but Ephesians 2, 10, I quote it all the time. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God has before ordained, that we should walk in them. God already has the plan. God doesn't come to the church and say, does anybody have any ideas? He already has good works that he created beforehand for you, for your life. And so he's not asking you to come up with a plan. But he is calling you to live in a relationship with him where that plan can unfold and you stay sufficiently close to him. And he, he leads you step by step by step by step by step. And so we come to this passage in Luke 18. And I just want to read it and then make some comments about it as it relates to this issue of what I believe is a crisis. And it relates to our prayer life. When I think about making disciples, this is so fundamental to what we need to do, what we're about. And so in Luke 18, verse 1, then he spoke a parable to them. And if you're paying attention, when it says then, it means something must have just been happening. And if you go to the last half of chapter 17, Jesus has been talking first to the Pharisees and then to the disciples about the coming of the kingdom of God. And uh, it's a rich passage and rich insight there. But it's in this context of describing a world that's increasingly hostile to believers, a world where it's increasingly difficult to be a believer, when trusting God is going to be tested over and over again because of the great evil and the great injustices and the great uh, harm that's brought to believers on this side of heaven. It's in the context of that kind of trouble and that kind of difficulty that he says in verse 1, then he spoke a parable to them. Okay? So if you're in trouble tonight, he's about to speak to you through this parable. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, this is Jesus, hear what the unjust judge said. Now, if you're watching close, he's about to say something that ties directly into that parable. Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge? Now there's that word avenge. And the unjust judge said the same word. I will avenge her. He says, Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, or perhaps better, will he bear long with them, or cause them to delay a long time? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? 
Now, when I first began to sit with this verse a couple years ago, and it was one, like I said, that I put in my journal, there's certain passages when I read them that the Lord seems to say so much to me through them that I just hang on to them. I might memorize them, but they're verses that I'll read again and again and again. And this one at first puzzled me because because he's talking about prayer and then he he gives this parable and he says that hear what the unjust judge said and it says something about God. And then at the end, there's this statement that just seems to come from nowhere. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, if you go back to chapter 17, he was talking about the coming of the Son of Man. So obviously, these... These, this entire passage is meant to be read together. So as we go through that passage, the, the purpose for the parables given to us at the outset, and that doesn't always happen with the parables, right? You read a parable and you're wondering, what does this mean? Well, in this case, we don't have to wonder why Jesus told this parable, because it's right there at the beginning, that men always ought to pray. And there, uh, when it says men always ought to pray, it means at all times, all the time, at all times, men always ought to pray and not lose heart, not quit, not neglect prayer, not stop. And then he goes right into this parable saying, and he describes this parable. So there's this judge, and he doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what God thinks. He's all in it for himself. Okay, so this is a, not a good judge. He's a terrible kind of judge. And this woman comes and she wants justice. And she she wears him out. She wearies him with her continual coming. At first he said, I'm not going to do anything for her. But she keeps coming. And she keeps coming. And she keeps coming. And finally he says, because she's going to keep coming, I'm going to avenge her. And then Jesus says, now hear what the unjust judge said. And so you go and look at that, and there's, there's, there's really parallel statements here. He, the judge says, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then he says, hear what the just, unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect? So God is like the judge only in the sense that he avenges the woman, but he's nothing like the judge. I mean, if an unjust judge who doesn't care what anybody thinks will avenge somebody who is crying out to them, he's essentially saying, how much more will God, looking at his people, his chosen people, these people who are precious to him, his sons, his daughters, how much more will he not avenge these dear ones who are crying out to him? And that word cry means to shout in a loud voice. And it means to scream in some contexts day and night. So now we have a picture of what it means to pray always. Because he's saying men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Well, what does that mean? He just told us. He's describing people who are crying out to God day and night. Day and night. Calling on him. And so when we come to this last statement. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he really find faith 
on the earth. There is nothing more likely to derail somebody's faith in God than to be in a crisis and to pray and not get an answer right away or get the answer that you want. How many people have you known who used to say they knew God and walked with God or went to church, but they don't anymore because they have experienced such a great hurt and such a great pain and they are holding God responsible because he didn't answer their prayer and answer their cry when they called on him. Theologians will often talk about the problem of theodicy and it's two Latin words, theo, which means God, and the last part, theodicy, means to rule. It talks about God rule. And here's the premise. You're going to recognize this. It's the oldest theological conundrum that supposedly gave rise to the study of theology in the second century. And here it is. If God is sovereign and God is loving and God is in control, why does he allow pain and suffering to continue in the world? And that's the question of the ages. Now, we want to question God. But in this passage, it is not God who's being questioned. It's the disciples. The promise here is that God is going to answer. And when he answers, he does it speedily. It is certain he's going to do it. It is sure he's going to do it. He will avenge his elect that cry out to him day and night. No question about it. He's going to do it. May not be on your timetable, but he's going to do it. Here's the real question. When history gets to its ultimate moment, and it seems that history and time and the nations and politics and morality and culture is absolutely the worst that it's ever been in the entire life of humanity. And Jesus returns. Will he find faith on the earth? Immediately we realize that faith must be pretty important to him. And those of you who are Bible scholars and you've studied this for years, you know that without faith it's impossible to please God. That faith pleases him. As you've studied further, you may have discovered that faith, like in First Peter, that genuine faith is, is as precious to God as, as gold is to us. More precious than gold. That, that the thing that we look at and say, that's the most valuable thing on the planet. God looks in your life and says, this is the most valuable thing in this person's life. Is their faith in me. And not only... Do these things happen and we're put in a position where I have to trust God? It not only calls out the genuineness of my faith, it proves my faith that it's real and that it's authentic, but it also has a way of purifying my faith. Because when you're in trouble and you're in a place where you're crying out to God and the answer's not coming when you want it to come or the way you want it to come, it's in that moment that you have to make a choice. I'm going to trust God no matter what. I'm going to trust God. And what happens at that point is, is your, your faith is tried 
like gold is refined in a fire and all the impurities come to the surface and the, the dross is scooped out. Oftentimes, what you and I discover is we are trusting God, but we're also trusting our bank account and we're trusting the physicians and we're trusting um, people we admire and we're trusting a thousand other things. And the Father, dear one, ultimately wants you to trust Him and Him alone. And so immediately we realize that whenever crisis comes into my life, there are two agendas at work. There's what I want, and there's what God is doing. When trouble comes into my life, I don't know about you, but my prayer runs something like this. God, make it stop. Make it go away. I don't want this. And meanwhile, what is the Lord doing? He's wanting to call out my faith, to show that it's real, to put me in places and circumstances where I have to trust him. And he wants to bring me to a place where I'm trusting him and nothing else. The Apostle Paul learned this. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about the thorn in the flesh. He asked God three times to take it away. God says, Request denied. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul says what he realized at that moment is that when I am weak, then I am strong. Because in my weakness, I discover that God, the power of Christ, tabernacles on me. And, and, and I experience the presence and the power of God in a way that I would not if he just came along and propped up my strength. He doesn't prop up our strength. He typically knocks the props out. And so I can't trust prop A, prop B, prop C, prop D. They're gone. That's all I got left. And so, and so faith becomes the center point of what Jesus is saying here. And your prayer life is the greatest, most precious expression of your faith. It's in the context of talking about our prayer life that he talks about his return and he's looking for people who genuinely trust him. And he describes the people who are genuinely trusting him as people who are crying out to him day and night. And so Jesus tells us to pray at all times then because of who God is. He's a God who hears. He's a God who answers. He's a God who already has the plan, and he's telling us something about who God is. He hears you. He is answering. He is going to answer. If we were to go back and had time and go look at Luke 11, there's another parable there, very similar. It tells a story of a man who has guests that come late at night, and, and he doesn't have the food. And hospitality in the Middle East, very important then and now. And he goes, and he knocks on the door, and he says, Neighbor, I don't have any, any bread for my... My guess, and, in, and typically in a home at that day and time, everybody slept in the same room. It was just one big room, and they're all in bed together. And for him to get up means go wake everybody else up. If you got little ones, you know, you don't want to do that. Shh. You know, but he keeps pounding on the door. And the Bible says he gets up and, and he gives him the bread, not because he's his friend, 
but because of his persistence. And the word technically that's used there means because of his shamelessness. He just got no shame about it. We, we homeschooled our kids through uh, eighth grade. One day I'm at work. I'm at the engineering firm that I worked at. I get a phone call, and the secretary knew that if it was my family to put them through. The secretary comes to the door. She says, she said, Don, you have a call. And I said, okay. She said, I think it's your son. He's a five-year-old kid on the phone. And so I pick up the phone. I said, hello. He says, Dad. I said, yes, son. What's wrong? He says, um, well, it's nap time, and I think I'm old enough. I don't have to take a nap. I said, son, where's your mother? He said, she's in the living room reading. I said, does she know you're on the phone? No. I said, son, go take a nap. Shamelessness. You know, just shamelessness. And yet, that is the way he tells us to come to him. Come like a child to their father. Doesn't matter how important they are to the rest of the world. That's their father, and they just come. And he says, he says, to ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And it's in a, in a way of speaking, it's an imperfect tense. It means to ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And then he says this. He says it in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6. The very same thing. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone. And so we learn something of who God is through this Luke 18 parable. He will answer. He will come. He will step in on behalf of His people. No question about it. So during those hard times, when we're asking and asking and seeking and seeking and knocking and knocking, we discover some of the most precious things about our Father that we would never learn any other time. Because we keep coming. We keep looking for Him. We keep looking at Him. We keep looking into His Word. And we discover He is far more beautiful than we ever imagined. We discover that His mercies are new every morning. Infinite mercies, completely spent yesterday, reloaded today. And, 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 and his compassions fail not. We discover something of who he is. And so we learn something about who God is. We also learn something about who we are. And we discover that God never made us to be self-reliant, to live independently of him. That is not good news. That is not good news. I, I think sometimes as we preach the gospel... We explain to people that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Absolutely true. And he carried our sins away when he took our place. He was buried and to prove our sins were forgiven. He was raised from the grave. But we often don't spend a lot of time explaining to people that that he accomplishes that forgiveness and that cleansing. And he gives us this new life by maybe making us one with Christ. To making us one with him. That He sends His Spirit to come live inside of us and to be for us essentially all that Jesus would be if He were here in person in the flesh. And so what He's done is He says, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. 
He's coming so that we might have a different way to live. And it involves faith, trusting Him, relying on Him. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be the answer guy. I don't have to fix all the problems. So many times I look at pastors, I say, I don't have a clue how to help you. But I can promise you on the authority of God's Word that He has a way for you through what you're experiencing. And what He is calling from you and for me, praying for you, is that you would enter into a relationship where you would stay sufficiently reliant upon Him that He can lead you and direct your path. This is not an alternative Christian life. This is the Christian life. So prayer then is more than getting answers. It's his pathway to experiencing him. Um, There's a lot I'm not going to get to, and I I knew that was a possibility when we started this. Um, Twenty-some-odd years ago, I was fired from a church. And as you can already tell, I'm a nice guy. So how could that be? Uh, I had I had left the engineering firm and I had gone on staff at a church and I was the essentially the discipleship pastor, the administrator. And I had been minister of outreach while bivocationally, uh, part time. And and God just did a remarkable thing in this church. I'm not taking any credit for it. I can't. It's not that. It's just that during our time there together, this this group of men and women who love the Lord, we're just trusting Him, and these all these leaders in the church who had a culture of prayer where they trusted God to bring people to their Sunday school class. They, they trusted God to bring people to the church. They trusted God for opportunities to talk to people in the barbershop or the, or the library at school or wherever they were. And they actively looked for those things to come about. And in the space of five years, we saw that church double in size. And, and we saw for five years someone come forward every Sunday. Every Sunday. When that pastor left, a new pastor came. The new pastor had an evangelistic resume. He had credentials and degrees. He was a gifted man. And, but, but something was off. And almost immediately, the whole atmosphere of the church changed. And there's so much of the story I can't share, but, but in the space of about a year and a half, the church began to decline and, and we weren't seeing the same things, the life changes taking place. We had had a culture of prayer and that was, that was shifting and it just, it was changing. The church took their eyes off the Lord, I believe. I was the fourth staff member that was either forced out or uh, coerced in those 18 months. So I had six children at home. And three months to find new work. And uh, 
I don't know about you, but I was sucking wind. You know, oh God, what's going to happen to us? And uh, and I wanted to convey the things I've been teaching my children. I wanted to convey to them that God can be trusted. And so we had always sought to do that with our kids when we move and stuff. And, you know, Abraham left. He didn't know where he was going. That's what we're doing, kids. We're just trusting God. And and um, and when I would feel anxiety, I it was a problem. God doesn't want you to be afraid, doesn't want me to be afraid. And so what I was doing, what I would do is I'd get up early in the morning and go out to our minivan with my Bible and my journal and a flashlight. And I went out there because there's no place in the house that's quiet once one person gets up in a house with the six kids. So I would go out in the minivan. It would be dark at the flashlight. And dear ones, I would sit there fearful and anxious, feeling fear and anxiety. What's going to happen to us? No one's calling. You know, no one seems interested. What are we going to do? What do I need to do, Lord? Do I need to go back to the engineering? All this kind of stuff. And I would stay there and it was either, it could be 15 minutes, it could be 30 minutes. There were times where it was just before lunch. I would stay there until I, through the help of the Holy Spirit, was able to take my eyes off of my problem and put my eyes on Him. And He was bigger than my problem. And I was able to exit the van at that point and walk into the house and look my wife in the eye and with a heart of genuine faith say to her, it's going to be okay. The Lord has got this. Well, after three months, four months, we had to move. Couldn't stay in the house we were in. We moved into my parents' house, into their basement. About the size of this platform with eight of us on cots and sleeping bags. It was it was a sight. It was harder to find a place to go then. And uh, I still went out to the minivan. And then um, the Lord was faithful and he did put us where he wanted us to be. And that season of life came to a close. But I tell you what never changed were the things he had revealed to me about himself. As I turned to him every day with that sense of anxiety, urgency, worry, fear, what's going to happen, and learning to unburden my heart and put my focus on him. That is easier said than done if you're a normal person. And so that persistent praying, that that habit of praying, that that taking things to the Lord, praying at all times, praying continuously, doesn't necessarily mean you're you're talking to God every single second in your heart, but it means you're talking to God every time there's something to talk about. And and uh, when I teach a third years, we talk about an inner conversation that you develop when you're abiding in Christ. And and a, an inner conversation with the Lord. Because you're resting in Him and you're bringing things to Him. As a pastor, people come in, they want counsel. 
And I got books on the shelf about how to counsel, Kevin. <laughs> but I didn't say, hold on a minute. Y'all wait out there. I've got to look this one up. But they would come in. And they would sit down and says, as they're telling me what hurts and as they're telling me what's wrong, I'm talking to the Lord. I'm listening to them. And I'm saying, oh, God, how do you want me to respond to this person? Father, what do I need to ask them that I haven't asked? Father, what are they not telling me? There are times he would bring things to mind that I would ask them about and it'd be exactly what needed to be asked. There were times where he surfaced things, brought things to mind, or, or I just listened. And I would simply pray with them and then something would come to mind after the visit. But the point is, there was this inner dialogue, inner conversation with the Lord. Rooted in his word and my time with him. Rooted in a, a lifelong habit of looking to him when I'm in trouble. Looking to him when I'm not in trouble. Gazing upon him. And so that that becomes a process of transformation. And what we discover is that he uses prayer to transform us and to make us more like Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. And he calls on us to pray not only for ourselves, but to pray for others, that they too would be strengthened in their faith, that they too would grow in likeness to Christ. So I wish we had more time to delve into that, but I'm going to hit pause here. Um, I want to do something maybe a little different, but um, I want us to have a time of response. But before we enter that time of response, I wonder if there's something that that has come to mind that someone wants to share uh, with us in response to what we've talked about or what we prayed about tonight. I know this is dangerous, Colin, but God's brought something to your mind and and you just want to share it. Okay, it's a late hour. I thank you for your attentiveness. Um, My hope is that the Father has just begun to lay a foundation for us this weekend. And, um, And so I trust that you will be encouraged to trust him as you, uh, as you wait to see what he's going to do in your life. Can I close us with a word of prayer? And then if you would like to continue visiting with others here and to be praying with them, uh, please feel free to do so. Uh, when we spoke earlier about needing to clear the air with someone to make a relationship right, uh, this is a good time to do it. Don't, don't wait. So let's pray together. Let's close. Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for the privilege of just sitting with these dear ones and and thinking about all the different ways in which you have you put each of us in circumstances where we really really don't have a choice we can continue to trust you or we can shrink back and walk away well i pray tonight that um, as we walk together this weekend that there would truly be a life change for each of us, a shifting of the way we see things so that we can never see our lives 
the needs of those around us ever again the same way. For that person here tonight who's hurting, who's overwhelmed, who desperately needs your encouragement, we pray that you would supply to them the peace, the sense of calm that they that they're asking for right now. We ask for that for them. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the evening that's ahead. And as we rest, we rest in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you're dismissed.